This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everybody, I am Theta, this is the Not Quite Daily Show, episode 15 of the summer 2018 season. This video is about Rayview Starlight, especially the 10th episode. Uh, today's episode seems to end with our long-awaited Act 2 break, the moment that sets up the final arc of the story. There are two especially relevant things to mention when it comes to an Act 2 break. The first is that it usually foreshadows the tone of the finale, as Act 3 is almost always a reversal of the rising or falling action that leads into it. A triumphant, satisfying, or happy Act 2 break is often a setup to a descending Act 3 that ends in tragedy. A falling Act 2 break, full of disaster or heartbreak, is instead setting up a trial to be overcome by story's end. Generally speaking, if the Act 2 break is the lowest point in the story for the protagonist, then they are likely to find success by story's end, whatever success may mean. The other relevant pattern is that the story surrounding the break is usually of particular significance. That is, whatever themes or characterizations or other story components have focus leading up to the break are elevated in importance to the work as a whole. They make a significant impression on the minds of the audience because of their place in the story structure, and that is not an opportunity a competent storyteller will squander. Whether I'm right about this being the break or not, today's episode is all about teams and partnerships. That appears to be the thematic concept that is being stressed by its placement in our story. Thus, we have what appeared to be a final solidifying of all the different groupings in the series, giving everyone in the cast a home. And then, we abruptly have the OG team of Kar and Hikari show that their journey is still incomplete as the ninth ray view we predicted last time reared its ugly head. To expound on this idea, we are going to look at the team focus of this episode, how that might be related to the prevailing link with the Takarazuka ray view, and we will ask ourselves some questions about what this turn of events and focus may suggest. During the video I made following the sixth episode, there was a section where I pointed out how the roommate situations were mirroring the relationships between the girls, shifting and realigning as they changed in relation to each other, even if only temporarily. We left the Juna-Banana pairing a little incomplete at the time because we didn't yet know about Banana, and so still assumed that she and Juna would have some working out to do. That has since happened and the beginning of this episode took a moment to reinforce it. After losing to Karin, Banana was consoled by Juna, who regaled her with several relevant quotes, something Banana showed immediate interest in. This time, it is Banana who supplies the quote to Juna. This echo indicates to us that they form a pair now, just as most of the others. 
This completes the pattern of having every group of roommates also exist as a kind of team together. This episode doesn't only highlight the Juna-Banana pairing. They also reinforce the Karuko-Futaba team, first with the scene of their familiar lap-pillow routine, and again when they are in the audience for the final review. Karuko announces she is leaving, going back to her normal pattern of running away and waiting for Futaba to chase after her. But Karuko announcing it at all is a change, and Futaba telling her that she is staying, that she isn't going to chase after her, is a further change. In light of this, Karuko decides not to run after all and stays put. Though subtle, I think this is an indication of their growth as a pair out of their old pattern and into something healthier. Hikari and Karin also end up spending a lot of time reaffirming their bond, making good on the promise to see the aquariums together, along with a visit to the gift shop. A lot of their day seems to consist of making amends to their younger selves for the separation they've had to endure, and their younger selves even show up to witness it. Even Mahiru, in her accepted role as supporter, gets to aid the pair by giving them an excuse to do all of these things together. The lone holdouts of this arrangement, then, are also our only characters without roommates, Maya and Claudine. While the final review and the cliffhanger ending are certainly a big part of this episode, Maya and Claudine becoming a team like everyone else is probably just as important. As we had this succession of confirming the existing partnerships then lead up to a review which is literally a team match, I think there should be little doubt of the emphasis placed on Maya and Claudine coming together. In fact, focusing on both of them in the same episode, rather than giving each a solo episode, further highlights that their team-up is more significant than their existence as individuals. Indeed, all of their character development this episode was in relation to the other person. The importance of all this establishing and reinforcing of partner dynamics, I suspect, is linked to Starlight Review's relationship to the Takarazuka Review. We talked about this long ago, so to briefly restate, in the Takarazuka Review, the actresses are all divided into either female role players, Musume Yaku, or the male role players, Otoko Yaku. Each troupe will have a top Otokoyaku player, who is the top star, and a top Musumeyaku player, and these two will play the lead male and female roles in every production. Now, even though the Musumeyaku player is not the top star, they are not just a runner-up. Rather, they are the important supporting player to that top star role. That is, their own portrayal of femininity must support and reinforce the Otokoyaku's portrayal of masculinity. The top star's success comes in part from a good partnership with their Musumeyaku, a good team. If you look around at our Rayview Starlight Girls, you'll see their groupings have a similar pattern. The most obvious ones are Futaba Karuko and now Claudine Maya with Futaba and Claudine as the Musumeyaku supporting Karuko and Maya so that they can excel. There was even a brief bit last episode showing these pairs split by role, further illustrating these parallels. Barana and Juna divide as well, although theirs appears as a bit of a reversal. Barana is the superior fighter in the auditions and is quite a bit taller. In fact, her height was one of the reasons I predicted she might be the end boss because it recalled the top stars of the Takarazuka review. 
those attributes which suggest that she should be the Tokoyaku in their pairing and Juna the Musumayaku, but their roles and personalities actually suggest the opposite. Juna is still aiming for the top, aiming to be the best, while Banana defaults to wanting to support everyone else. They are in inversion, while still existing as a lead and support partnership. A further complication is the relationship between Mahiru, Karen, and Hikari. While Karen and Hikari have a partnership of their own, Mahiru exists as a kind of supporting player to both of them. Not as a Musumeyaku to Hikari, and then also one to Karen, but rather to the idea of both of them as her Otokoyaku. This idea is echoed by the notion of the two of them sharing a single fate, Karen's goal to have both of them stand on stage together, the visual symbol of Tokyo Tower as a single spotlight they share, rather than each having their own spotlight, and the way the two are positioned as though they were a single unit in the opening credits when claiming position zero. This even shows up in their living situation, where not only do the three share the same room, Mahiru ends up playing domestic caregiver to both of them, sometimes for the exact same infraction. So here we have another lead-support partnership, and it is yet one more step different from the norm than the Juna-Banana one. Then we have Karan and Hikari themselves. They manage to both fall into this pattern and defy it. They naturally align to the two starlight leads, with Hikari as Claire and Karan as Flora, which makes them into a classic Otokoyaku-Musumayaku pair, with Hikari as the male role player and Karan the female role player. Yet, they also have moments where Karan stands central and Hikari seems to be her support, most dramatically in the final exchange of blows with Maya. And then, of course, there's the times when they seem like a single unit or each other's reflections. In fact, since Hikari is the only person who wears her jacket on her right shoulder, they are the only pairing that can literally mirror one another, and each of their costumes contains only colors that are also found in the others. They also have the most similar uniform pattern by far. Now, why is any of that important? Well, almost from the beginning, we've talked about the idea that Review Starlight is not just inspired by the Takarazuka Review, but exists as a critique of it and its system. The Giraffe's auditions, which seek to promote a single top star above them all, seems like a direct parallel to the winner-take-all system of Takarazuka. Even the idea of taking the shine from the runner-up seems similar to the Musumayaku role, whose main purpose is to elevate the Otokoyaku, who is the actual top star. Part of this episode revolved around Maya and Claudine coming to accept each other as perfect partners in such a system. Recall how Claudine described the way they met and how she has been number two ever since. In fact, we see several instances where they are partnered in such a way. It's only been their own focus on being alone at the top that has prevented them from realizing. Once forced to be a team, there is no more ignoring how perfectly they complement one another. Even when defeated, Claudine displays her acceptance of supporting Maya by cutting off her own button and insisting that Maya was not defeated. The loss was her own. And then, Maya surprises Claudine by having learned French. Not only does that give them one more thing that bonds them together, Maya reveals this ability in order to speak aloud to their partnership and affection. 
As a pair, they are practically the pinnacle of the Takarazuka idea of a Musumeyaku-Otokoyaku partnership. And that is probably why they lost. As we just discussed, Karan and Hikari's partnership both matches and inverts the Takarazuko system of two clear roles, a lead and a support. Karan is aiming to overturn the giraffe's whole audition process, which symbolically appears to mean overturning that whole idea of separating the players into top star and support. The giraffe himself might even be on board with this, something we talked about last time. He wants something no one has ever seen, something dazzling that no one can predict. Karan's entire trajectory into this version of the audition has been about overturning precedent, which not only resulted in a ninth participant, but a duet finale and a surprise ninth review. In that respect, it is consistent that her partnership would be able to overturn the Maya-Claudine partnership. It is the height of the old system, and she is upsetting that system. And yet, that ending. Despite the unprecedented event of two girls passing the eighth review, and despite the idea of two people sharing one fate, there is a ninth review aptly called the Review of Tragedy. Hikari and Karan gave it their best shot, came further than anyone else believed, but at the end there, the giraffe demanded that there be only one top star. Thus does Hikari make the hard but necessary choice to... Wait. The giraffe? didn't say anything of the sort. Hikari is the one who jumps to that conclusion, who asserts that they both can't be stars. To this statement, the giraffe gives his cryptic wakarimasu, but he doesn't confirm or suggest anything specific about only one of them passing. Okay, but maybe he didn't need to, right? He said before that it was a singular role, so that should be sufficient. His word is the law in these auditions, after all. Even though Karin wanted to join in the review back in episode one, he told her that such people will not be called upon, and he asked her to leave. So she did, and she never participated. Well, no, that didn't happen either. Nor did he really even protest her crashing the whole party. In fact, he counters Hikari when she is trying to get him to kick her out. In retrospect, it appears that the giraffe says things that seem absolute, and yet actually acts depending on the resolve of the girls. Hikari lost in the London auditions, and so should have surrendered all of her shine, and I think some of her memory of the auditions themselves. When her promise to Karin ignites her remaining will, the giraffe doesn't correct the oversight or ignore her, he rewards that will with a second chance. When Karin jumps into the review, he doesn't remove or punish her. He allows her to express her will as part of the audition process. When Karin's inclusion creates an inconclusive situation at the final audition, he rewards all their efforts by breaking the normal procedure and having a duet finale. None of this occurs to Hikari, and I imagine she is wary of being duped by the giraffe again. More importantly though, I think it is Starlight itself that is guiding her decision. After the fight with Banana, she and Hikari exchange a few words about the tragedy the script of Starlight calls for, that it must end in parting. Hikari does not argue or disagree, but rather suggests that she must carry on anyway. She has gone along with Karin's dream of standing on stage together, but still dreads what may lie at Journey's end. This tenth episode itself invokes Starlight pretty directly. 
In the gift shop, Karin speaks the lines that accompany Flora's first meeting with Claire, and Hikari responds in kind. What's more, the lines are about them reuniting over a promise, something they are in the process of doing by being in the gift shop. They are fulfilling the promise to their younger selves, who both watch and participate. They are even standing in front of facsimiles of Tokyo Tower and its symbolism as both stage and spotlight. As they later comment about drawing a crowd, one wonders if they didn't complete the whole starlight rendition right there, with their younger selves watching from the staircase. Thus, when they are later sitting on the bench, and Karin proposes that they come there again, we have another echo of Claire and Flora's promise. It's like she is queuing up another starlight sequence. But armed with foreknowledge of how starlight really ends, Hikari's mood immediately sours, and she begins to talk about how they'll separate again one day, with her sad and solitary younger self looking on. And so, when the review of tragedy begins, Hikari realizes that they are performing Starlight right then and there, that the auditions were a mirror to Claire and Flora fighting past the other goddesses, and the ascending platform they're on is the finale, when the star in the tiara will come into reach. Maybe Karin doesn't realize it, but they are fulfilling their promise to do Starlight together, just not in the manner that she expected. So then, what happens at the end of Starlight? Well, both Claire and Flora reach for the star. Not just Claire, who is the one who needs the wish to bring back her memories, but Flora and Claire together. Perhaps this is why Flora is blinded by the star's red rays and falling from the tower. Perhaps this is just what Hikari sees about to play out, because surely Karin would propose that they reach for the tiara together, chasing her goal of having them both be stars. We talked last video about how the girls seem to be rewriting the story, not just because of stopping Banana's time loop, but also all of the changes they were making to the next Starlight and the way all of their relationships were evolving. Last episode particularly focused on the Starlight changes, while this one highlighted their partnerships and group dynamics. Taken together, it suggests that retelling Starlight and strengthening their bonds are part of the same process. Yet, while all the other girls have solidified their teams, Hikari demonstrates right at the end that she hasn't bought into this idea as fully as the rest. She is so worried about Karin's fate as an individual that she stopped thinking about their fate as partners. This whole episode was full of her thanking Karin for saving her, for remembering her, and so it seems that she was mentally preparing herself to save Karin even at a cost to herself she would rather fall alone than have them fall together. Yet, even as she tries to defy the tragedy she sees unfolding, striking Karin before she can reach for the tiara, it doesn't prevent their situation from mirroring starlight. Karin's cloak still falls off, she still plummets from the tower, and, apparently, Claire as Hikari must still say goodbye. It's an interesting technique, you know? Having a story within a story that foreshadows so directly. Those of you who watched my Darling in the Franks analysis might remember how much we talked about the picture book's fairy tale, and how it seemed to both reflect and predict our course. Something that is common when you have stories get so much focus, like in Darling, like the Starlight play in this series, is that the characters become self-aware about how prescient the contained story could be. They know they may be headed for something tragic, and even have a guideline for how it might play out. 
Characters and audience alike are on guard for the two narratives to match stride, and we begin to anticipate the ways that those involved can perhaps turn their fate aside. Surely, knowing how tragedy may happen will let the characters defy it when the time comes, right? And yet, what is so interesting is that when the moment does arrive, the real characters suddenly understand why they might choose the same way the story characters do. They will suffer a tragedy of their own making because some other outcome has become more disagreeable along the way. Having their own actions play out identically to the story within a story probably feels inevitable, and may seem like the best option regardless. Hikari doesn't want to see Karin blinded and deprived of her shine, and so seizes Top Star, with the intent to change that outcome. Yet doing so seems like it will cause them to separate and have their dream never come to be, just the same as Claire and Flora. She tried to overturn the story, but ended up telling the same tale. I don't think Hikari realizes how much they have already rewritten Starlight, and how likely it was that a different end was possible. Karin's thematic inertia was capable of overturning Banana's dominance, was capable of rescuing Hikari from her lost purpose, was capable of forcing herself as the ninth person into an eight-girl story. Just as they were able to defeat Maya and Claudine, who are an ideal partnership in the Takarazuko Review system, they should be able to defeat the audition system that may represent it. The real Takarazuko Review puts on the same show for months, with the same stars each time. It repeats the story over and over. Yet Karin is out to break such a system, believing that a performance can only happen once, that everything burns away in that moment, that the stage girls are reborn every time they stand on stage. They can do Starlight a hundred times and tell it a hundred different ways. We had a team-focused episode culminate with Maya and Claudine forming the ultimate partnership of lead and support, a triumph of the normal system, and yet in that very moment, Karan and Hikari overcame them. If they can overcome one part of the system, they can overcome other parts. All the parts. Perhaps even where the story would normally go from here. Now what happens next is a little mysterious. We don't know specifically what Hikari is going to use the wish for, though we can guess a general direction. Since she doesn't want Karan to lose her shine, yet also thinks this is goodbye, then we have to assume she plans some kind of reset that prevents Karin from joining the auditions. Karin only got involved in the way she did because of Hikari, so Hikari removing herself from the picture has a certain logic to it, and it would make sense for her to say that this is goodbye if that was her intent. Take away Karin's desire, and she won't meet a tragic end. But I don't think this will work. Thanks to Karin, all the girls have stronger bonds than when they began, and this includes Karin and Hikari. Focusing on this truth right before this watershed moment means that these strong teams are critical to the makeup of our story. Hikari thinks splitting their partnership will change Karin's fate, but at this point, I'm not sure it is possible for them to be split apart, at least not for good. Even the other girls' strengthened relationships might have something to say about the way Hikari has turned the story. I suspect they are strong enough to persist even through a reset, that some sense of how things should be between them will remain. They won't feel right without Karin, and they won't feel right without Hikari. A starlight with just eight of them is no longer the story they are going to tell.
title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.